2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today I'm honoured and blessed to be in dialogue with Dr. George A. Kiraz. He is a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University. Today we are going to be in dialogue about his new book, Water the Willow Tree, Memoirs of a Bethlehem Boyhood, published in Piscataway, New Jersey, by Gorgias Press, 2022. George, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you'd become as an adult?
2: Um, I was born and raised in Bethlehem, uh, in the West Bank, in Palestine. Um and oh what inspired this color in me um my parents always advocated for education and at church i was surrounded by clergy both monks and priests and deacons who valued reading and writing and education And uh, I think that's what uh, kind of kindled it for me.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers?
2: Uh, So this book, um, basically my memoirs. um, Many people, when they were hearing my stories, they always encouraged me to kind of write memoirs. But I've always found the experience bit dull because you're sitting and writing about yourself and to be honest with you i tried a few times and it didn't work you know you would go a few pages and you would stop but the the in 2020 the pandemic uh you know gave the setting for it we were all cooked up at home and and i thought that's a good time to sit and do it and uh what also encouraged me is that that summer my son had digitized my pa- my father's archive my my mom's notebooks my own archive so now i had kind of data to go with as well so it made it it became kind of memoirs slash research project what are the primary
0: themes in this book what story does your memoir tell
2: it tells the story of uh, a boy raised up in in Palestine uh, but a boy in a community that is kind of on the peripheries of the conflicts in Palestine uh, because I belong to a minority uh, to a Syriac minority uh, and while Syriac history in Palestine is quite ancient and old uh, but the current families in in Palestine um are basically uh survivors of the 1915 genocide which took place in Ottoman Turkey uh so so the community basically was an immigrant community uh within Palestine and lived on as I said on the peripheries of uh of, of, the, of the conflicts um, that were going on. I mean, at least that's how my life
0: was. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
2: Uh, if they uh, can get to uh, not know me, but know my community through me, uh, through my story, through the story of my family, If they can get to know the Syria community, it's an ancient community uh, dispersed all over the Middle East, now mostly in the diaspora. Uh, It's a community that uh, has an existential problem because we are not that many people. Um, So if they can get to know my community through me, I'll be very happy. In
0: what ways was the writing process that went into this book therapeutic for you? Can you elaborate?
2: Um, it was therapeutic in the sense that uh, my story is not a jolly story, uh, you know, in a, in, in, in a way, it's a, it's a sad story of an immigrant family who survived genocide and then in 1948 lost its properties again because of the Arab-Israeli war uh, and, and became refugees one more time for a second time. Um, and, uh, you know, that means uh, financially our family was not strong after 1948, so we had to grow up with that, Uh, and that, you know, entails uh, uh, difficulties in life, so it it gave me an opportunity and also gave my sisters an opportunity uh, to reflect upon that because I had to discuss many things with them, and to remind me with a few things that I didn't know about or or tell me a few things that I didn't know about. So from that perspective, it was uh, therapeutical and useful. What does your book
0: teach us about trauma?
2: Well, it teaches us about the trauma of wars. Uh, my family story is, is a story of immigrants. Uh, they used to live in what is now Southeast Turkey, uh, Upper Mesopotamia. And um, as a result of the 1895 massacres that took place, they had to move within the bounds of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and again, the major move was in 1915. After the genocide, they had to leave the, their hometown and become an immigrant community in a bigger bigger city in Adana uh, my father was four years old or three maybe when they had to leave Adana uh, and walking basically walking and on donkeys all the way down to Lebanon and then later on down to Palestine and um, and my father then built himself and, and, and made a good life for himself in Jerusalem, um, only to lose everything in 1948 again. Uh, so, so it's a big uh, uh, issue with, with the trauma of war.
0: What is your book's contribution to the history of Syriac Christianity in the 20th century?
2: So basically, my story is the story of many other families. And uh, one of my friends was reading it, and he said, I I really enjoyed it because it also tells the story of my family, although they are in different regions in the Middle East. Um, It depicts uh, this tiny community that lived in different towns and villages and areas, of the Middle East, dispersed really uh, in, in a large geographical area, uh, under half a million people, uh, but bound by an identity that connected them to their patriarch, to their church, um, and and then they faced that trauma of genocide, and then they had to migrate within the Middle East to 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 rebuild. To rebuild themselves and although my story stops in 1983 when I left uh, Bethlehem and immigrated to the United States, uh, history keeps repeating itself with current wars in the Middle East uh, where now the Syria community is uprooted again and is mostly in the diaspora.
0: How does your book advance our understanding of the Seifo genocide?
2: Uh, it depicts the uh, genocide quite vividly. Uh, talks about talks about my father's side of the family. My mother's side of the family uh, uh, had my grandpa from my mom's side had had gone to to Bethlehem when he was thirteen before the for genocide. So they were not affected. They heard of Saifa and didn't go back. So that was the effect on them. But on my dad's side, I, I showed the movement throughout uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, due to the Saifa genocide, but also from his mom's side. His, mom, his his mom's side, so that's my grandma, was an Armenian. So also it depicts uh, how they also had to move and, and both the Syriac and the Armenian families met in Adana. And that's how my grandpa met my grandma and they got married uh it's uh uh it's a vivid story of
0: of safer what does your book teach us about listening
2: listening um in terms i mean listening to others or
0: yeah the importance of listening the value of listening the significance of listening what role does listening play in the narrative in your
2: book well, uh, there there is listening, uh, in the in the sense of uh, you know you listen to your parents and 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 you'll be a good boy basically and be a good girl. Um, uh, my uh, you know, I, I was not an easy child, but but uh, I did listen to advice and and also to the advice of uh, my teachers, uh, both in the uh boarding school that I attended and as well as the monks and the priests of the church. Uh, But also there is the sense of uh, attentively listening uh, through, not hearing, but listening through reading. So, you know, hopefully people who read the book, they will perceive my story uh, through imagining the voices of of genocide and war and trauma, but also of of this little boy, who is growing up in a little town of Bethlehem, uh, which which is kind of a Christian enclave uh, in in the Middle East, uh, amongst other communities, and how that affected his life.
0: What new insights does your book reveal about the Armenian genocide?
2: so the story of the syriacs uh, and the armenians is similar um i mean percentage-wise a lot of syriacs were killed and displaced Uh, the absolute number of armenians is much higher because you're talking about a much bigger community Uh, but the story is is very very similar Um, Admittedly, the the Ottoman Empire uh, most likely went after the Armenians uh, rather than the Syriacs or other Christian communities. But on the ground, the people who were executing the genocide made no distinction. Uh, And that's how the Syriacs and other communities also became victims of of this uh, genocide.
0: What was the biggest adversity you faced growing up how did you cope how were you impacted later in life by such difficulty?
2: so um, the difficulties that uh, I will be talking about were not difficulties at the time because that was the norm of life living under occupation for example uh you know living in a family that didn't have much financial means. Um it was still a good life. And although now retrospectively we look at it and we say, you know, that must have been a difficult life. But when that is the norm and that's how you're growing up, you don't you don't see it that way. Um of course going back now and visiting after many years, you know, I, I see that uh the occupation portion of the story is much worse now. So the way we had it, well, we, we were in a much better shape in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, but, uh, you know, we managed.
0: What does your book reveal about Syriac Christians' experiences of the 1948 war?
2: So the Syriacs of Palestine, as I said, arrived there. Uh, as as immigrants because of the genocide. And some lived in Jerusalem. Uh, about half of them lived in Jerusalem and the other half in Bethlehem. Um, and maybe even the Jerusalem community was a bit bigger uh, at the time, before 1948. But then when 1948 came, uh a lot became refugees they lost their homes and that was the case of my father. My father had built a very nice uh, Villa house in telepiot which was an you know upcoming and and, and and affluent neighborhood of of Jerusalem on the road to Bethlehem uh so he he lost that and became a refugee um and then many other people became refugees and if you look at the, the re- record of the families in Bethlehem. There's a list before 1948, a list after 48, and you see how after 1948 uh, the, Beth- the Bethlehem community became became much larger. Um, and then after 1967, even uh, when when Israel took hold of the old city, uh, more and more people had to leave. Uh, what is now called the Jewish Quarter, uh, that is adjacent to the Syriac Quarter. So the, the 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 border with the Syriac Quarter had a lot of Syriac families living in what is now the Jewish Quarter. But a bit by bit, uh, uh, families uh, were were asked to leave, uh, and uh, uh, we have. Anecdotes and stories, and this applied not only to Syriacs but to the others. Where after 1967, the Israelis will offer some financial compensation for for people to leave, and some would leave, and some would stay. Uh, but in the case of of the Syriac family, many wanted to stay, and and they said, "No, we want to stay." The offer was, "Why don't you go to Amman and you know build something, and here is some 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 gift, let's say." Uh, and many families wanted to stay. Uh, but then at some point, the authorities went to the leadership uh, of of in the monastery. And they said, you know, you need to advise your people. Either they're going to have to leave and get some sort of a compensation. Uh, or if they refuse, they're just going to have to leave without anything. We, we will basically uh, kick them out of their homes. Um so so in, after 1967, uh, you start seeing another wave of people leaving Jerusalem because they had to, to leave uh, Jerusalem. How did Syriac Christians
0: experience the 1967 war? How were the consequences similar or different in 1967 vis-a-vis 1948? What does your book reveal? In particular, perhaps can you comment on the Syriac quarter of the old city? And the consequences of the 1967 for for the Syriac quarter within the old city.
2: Yeah. So so as I just mentioned, uh, after 1948, many people remained within the Syriac quarter, uh, but after 1967, as uh, Israel took hold of the old city, they forced the majority of the families to leave, uh, and uh, the result now is that you have no more than 70 families in in the old uh, city. The Syriac quarter remains sandwiched between the Armenian quarter and the Jewish quarter now. Uh, and I remember in the 70s when uh, a new building settlement uh, was built right across from the Syriac monastery of St. Marks. Uh, and until now, you know, it, it remains there. Um, in Bethlehem, uh, I tell the story of the 1967 war and uh, how my father was, you know, visiting his parents and then he had to avoid shells in order to to go back home and to protect us. Uh, but the war was not that long. Uh, it, 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 it settled uh, pretty fast. And uh, there, there is a letter that my father was writing to John C. Trevor in the U.S., uh, which he started before 1960, before the war. And it used to take him a few days to write his letters. And then you see a line in the letter and says, you know, until now I was writing under Jordanian sovereignty. Now I am writing under Israeli occupation. And then he's asking Trevor to, to contact his uh, sisters and... Uh, Uh, in in, in Amman, in Kuwait, in Lebanon, just to tell them that he is okay. Uh, So that's how it affected
0: the communities. What is your book's contribution to Bethlehem's modern history and historiography?
2: So uh, Bethlehem, when I grew up, was a Christian majority, uh, and the Syriac community was a vibrant portion of that. Uh, And as I said, the Syriac community uh, was uh, was an immigrant community. Um, Bethlehemites are are configured around clans. Uh, these are like the the, uh, the the primary clans of 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 the town of Bethlehem. The Syriacs are outside of that configuration because they do not belong to 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 these clans. Uh, so the, the book basically depicts how a small minority is living within uh, a Christian town and the dynamics between the communities.
0: What does your book teach us about love? What role does love play in your memoir? How is love characterized?
2: I have tried to the best of my ability to depict basically uh, the life as I experienced it. And I tried also to the best of uh, my abilities to describe this life which is within conflicts, not only conflicts uh, with the uh, because of the Arabs and the Israelis and their conflict with each other, but also you know, conflicts as the Syriacs being a minority, Amongst the Bethlehemites, conflicts with the uh, with the other Christian communities in the holy places, primarily with the Armenian community. I tried to depict these things as much as possible with grace, uh, and and uh, uh, that that is what you take out of it is that uh, is that communities need to. To coexist. How has the city of Bethlehem
0: changed in the course of your lifetime? How is Bethlehem's social geography different today than you remember it as a child?
2: So, uh, during the time when I grew up, seventies and eighties, the 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 changes, if anything, were gradual. So there wasn't that much that was noticeable. What was noticeable were two things. Uh, one was on the peripheries of the towns near Bethlehem. Uh, see, settlements were being built by the Israeli government. I do remember seeing, uh, seeing trucks uh, transporting uh, basically uh, complete walls of homes so uh, b- people in the middle east used to build ho- homes stone by stone these were not stone by stone homes these were wall by wall basically uh, homes you you would find uh, you, you would see a big truck uh, basically carrying four walls which 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 is making an entire room probably uh, and that was the settlement of gilo near bejada uh, so i witnessed uh, That growing around the city of Bethlehem. Another thing that became noticeable was uh, after the Iranian revolution, uh, when Khomeini came to power, uh, we began to see uh, the uh, smaller Muslim community of Bethlehem changing a bit where you would start seeing schoolgirls beginning to wear the hijab A day by day, it became more and more and uh, that the word on the street was that that was because of, of Iranian influence and, and Iranian support to, to try to change the face of Islam itself within the city of Bethlehem. So that's what I myself witnessed. Uh, I did not visit Bethlehem after I lived after I lived for 30 years. And these two issues uh, after I went after 30 years, of course because you don't see them gradually changing changing, you see it exponential of course. Uh, now Bethlehem is surrounded by settlements all over the place, not to mention the wall. Uh, that is surrounding Bethlehem. you cannot uh, people cannot uh, go in and out. This is particularly difficult for the Syriac community because they need to go to Jerusalem uh, in order to participate in the liturgies of the holy places uh, vis-a-vis the status quo and uh, and they're not able to do that. Uh, so that that is a bit problematic. And of course the demography of the community of Bethlehem or the communities, plural of bethlehem uh, seems to have drastically changed as well when you don't see it for 30 years and then you just come and see it and of course because i was a kid everything looks big to you when you're a kid apparently i went to bethlehem and everything looked smaller to me uh, but but that's uh,
0: natural after you grow you grow up what does your book reveal about the relationship between the syriac orthodox church in bethlehem and other christian churches such as the Armenian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and other such churches?
2: So, uh, so you have basically uh, the different Christian traditions that you mentioned, and we experience it vividly every Christmas, because Bethlehem, being the, the, the birthplace of Christ, it is the city of Christmas, celebrates Christmas three times every year on December 25th is the Catholic uh, uh, Christmas or the Latin uh, Christmas. Uh, and that's basically twenty five of December according to the Gregorian calendar, the calendar we use every day. The Eastern Christians also celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, but according to the Julian calendar, So the equivalence of that is the 7th of January in our calendar. So on the 7th of January, there is a second set of uh, celebrations. Uh, The Syriacs, the Copts, the Greeks, and the Ethiopians, they celebrate uh, Christmas on that day. The Armenians, while Orthodox, have an ancient tradition of celebrating Christmas and Epiphany on the same day, on the 7th of January, but not on the same day as our Christmas because also they follow the Julian calendar. So you have to add 13 days to that. It ends up being later in January, and that's where they celebrate Christmas and Epiphany at the same time. So you have 25th of December for uh, uh, the Catholics, then 7th of January for the Orthodox, apart from the Armenians, and then later on in the month, for the armenians the uh, the uh, relationship between these communities is is very cordial uh and uh, they coexist quite well uh, the only issue is is amongst the clergy not really the people uh, amongst the clergy when it becomes uh, about the issues of the status quo in the holy places the church of uh, resurrection in jerusalem church of the nativity uh, other places there are uh, regulations that dictate when and where you can each community can pray what time and sometimes things get too close for comfort and sometimes conflict arise uh, but that's the, the 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 life of the status quo basically that's what it is what does your book teach
0: us about internal
2: displacement so um uh, there there are two internal displacements that took place of course it, internal uh, when you you know depends on on what what you dictate is the geographical uh, boundary of of the place. Uh, during the genocide there was a lot of displacement within Southeast Turkey people going from town to town city to city trying to escape a genocide as things progressed. Uh, so that that was kind of one uh, displacement that is depicted uh, in the book when I talk about family history. Uh, the second displacement that, that, that's uh, uh, localized, basically, was as a, the result of the 1967 war, when you had people from uh, Jerusalem being displaced and becoming refugees in Bethlehem, like my family.
0: What does your book teach us about contemporary Palestinian history and heritage?
2: Uh, So uh, the uh, contemporary Palestinian story is a complicated story. And uh, my book really gives an outsider's, uh, initially at least, an outsider's uh, view to the conflict. Because remember, my family arrived in the 1920s. In Jerusalem, uh, and that is the period of time uh, where uh, you start seeing um, immigration by Jewish communities from Europe to uh, to the Middle East, and then, of course, more and more in the 30s. And I do say in the book that you're taught, you're looking you're looking at a family that probably didn't even know Arabic initially. They came from Turkey, they spoke Turkish and Armenian. Uh, So you're talking about an outside, somebody looking at at this conflict from the outside, a family, a poor family that is trying to survive within a conflict that is uh, is, uh, uh, boiling and growing around it. And how to navigate basically
1: That's Shopify.com/slash-system. Two
0: of the Syriac patriarchs of the Syriac Orthodox Church are referred to in your book: the Syriac Patriarch Elias the Third and the Syriac Patriarch Jacob the Third. Can you comment on their legacies? Um, what was your relationship with Jacob the Third? What are your recollections of Elias the Third?
2: So uh, Elias III was before my life he was in the, the in the 20s and the 30s uh, in in the area uh, basically after genocide uh, uh, the patriarch was uh, told uh, to leave Turkey uh, the modern state of Turkey This is after Ataturk uh, took hold uh, of the new Republic. Uh, The patriarch was more or less exiled uh, out of Turkey. And now uh, the patriarchate had no home because the home was in Mardin, which was within the bounds of the modern republic of Turkey. And that's why Elias Tatad went to Jerusalem. The hope of the church was that maybe Jerusalem can become the new patriarchate and uh they established a printing press in jerusalem they started sending the uh, the brains of the community uh to jerusalem the the the, the active monks the the, the intellectuals uh, uh to jerusalem uh they planned to organize a synod that not only uh, had bishops but also other lower clergy and and people not from the clergy. And the plan was to hold the Synod in Jerusalem. Uh, but later it was postponed. And when the church was unable to, uh, to basically create its Patriarchate in Jerusalem, uh, especially because of the status quo, the other communities, uh, Christian communities, uh, basically said that uh, there is no precedence of the Syriacs having a patriarch in Jerusalem. Uh, so so then they began to think of Mosul uh, as a possible uh, place for the patriarchate, and then they held that synod I talked about that was supposed to be held in Jerusalem. They held it in, in, in uh, Mosul, in Iraq. Uh, and then uh, after uh, Patriarch Elias went, uh, he also went to India for a visit, and, and he died there. He didn't come back. As for Jacob III, he was the patriarch during my childhood, but he was in Damascus. Uh, he visited in the 1960s, uh, uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but uh, that that's, uh, uh, I, 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 either I was not born or I was a few years old, so I have no recollection. But uh, uh, I don't have personal contacts uh, with him, or did not have, because he was based in Damascus. And and you've got to remember, like today we have internet and WhatsApp, and 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 we communicate with everybody everywhere. But uh, as a Syriac community in Palestine, we were uh, basically secluded from the rest of the Syrian community in in the world because we could not communicate with anybody within in, in the Arab world. Even if our bishops wanted to talk to the patriarch, he couldn't call him. There are no direct lines, phone lines. He had to write a letter and send it to somebody in Europe. And that somebody in Europe would would send the letter to Damascus. And that's how they had to communicate.
0: A number of other officials of the Syriac church are presented in your book. Bruder Jacob, Bruder Victor, Bruder Siegfried, Bruder Jakobus, Bruder Daniel, and Bruder Matthias. Can you tell us about some of these figures? What were your relationships like with them? How are they presented in your memoir?
2: So these figures are part of the Lutheran church. And I grew up uh, in a boarding school, in a Lutheran boarding school. So, at home, I had access to the Syriac tradition, uh, but at school, uh, we were raised with a Lutheran tradition, and those brooders, brooder means brother in German, Uh, and the Lutherans uh, uh, or the institutions were German institutions in Palestine. Uh, So the brooders used to do camps for us, Bible study, uh, take us on trips, and I became close uh, close with them. And I do describe in the book how that gave me access to the European uh, uh, style of life Uh, and from a religious perspective, it gave me access to Uh, 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 a tradition, the Lutheran tradition, which is very different from my Syriac tradition. And uh, I basically had the best of both worlds. Uh, It it broadened my horizon. And I think this is why, uh, you know, it may be a person who who, who likes uh, uh, intercultural things.
0: Your book says some very interesting things about the history of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Can you elaborate on your relationship with some of the individuals involved in early scholarship on the Dead Sea Scrolls? What is your personal relationship to the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscripts? How does your memoir contribute to the history of the discovery of the scrolls and the controversies surrounding the various claims to them?
2: Uh, My father, uh, as I said, built this villa house in in Telepiot. And after finishing the house, uh, basically they were uh, trying to uh, make a garden in the backyard. And it's a hill. So they wanted to flatten the hill. So they went to the top of the hill and started drilling uh, a rod, basically, so that they can make a big hole and basically dynamite the hill so they can flatten it. And all of a sudden, that rod that they were trying to drill into the ground fell into the ground. Uh, Then my father realized that there's a a cave there. So he had the workers open, go down, and then open it from the bottom. And then they discovered caves with ossuaries, And then my father reported that to the Department of Antiquity. And they sent an uh, Israeli, archae- or uh, Jewish at the time, Jewish archaeologist. The state of Israel was not born yet. Jewish archaeologist named Elazar uh, Sukenik. Uh, so my father came to know uh, uh A year or two later, a couple of years later, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and they ended up in the Syriac, or portions of them, in the Syriac monastery in Jerusalem with the bishop. My father was a very close friend with the bishop. And then the bishop was looking for somebody to help him financially. Uh, According to my father, my father and the bishop became partners to the scrolls. My father provided the financial assistance that the bishop needed. And that's how they became 50-50 partners. Uh, and one day, uh, my father contacted this archaeologist, Elia Azar sukenek and said, can I meet you? And then he, he, he basically came to the meeting, holding in his hands the Dead Sea Scrolls to get the opinion of, of Sukenik. Um, and then the scrolls were in my father's house for some time. Uh, then they were taken for a second uh, scholarly opinion uh, by the Americans at the uh, American School of Oriental Research in Jerusalem. Uh, So that is my father's involvement uh, with the scrolls. Uh, He became a partner, according to him, with the the bishop. But then later on, the bishop denied this partnership uh, and took the scrolls without my father's knowledge to the United States where he sold them. Uh, so that is the first involvement of my father with the scrolls. The second one was when research began by scholars about the history of the scrolls in the 1950s and the 1960s, they came to know of my father's involvement and scholars became to write to him from the United States. Uh, and basically, uh, the archive that my father had with this communication uh, is very rich about the history of the scrolls, because one particular scholar, John C. Trevor, would every time send questions to my father, and my father would go meet with the Bedouins who, uh, who, who discovered the scrolls, or different personalities that played a role in the scroll, and would, would, would get answers to these questions, write them back to John C. Trevor, so it's 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 uh, it's it's an archive of the research basically uh, that that is my father's archive or portion of it which i mentioned my son uh, kenoro uh, digitized and helped and that's what helped me write the memoirs who is abuna Yaqub?
0: what does your book reveal about him
2: so abuna Yaqub is was the priest of bethlehem the syriac priest uh, during my childhood, he is the one who taught me the Syriac language. He is the one who taught me how to read liturgies in the church. He was my my first teacher, basically, and uh, he always took care of me. He is the one who who told my dad to bring me to the altar, and then I became a deacon, and I'm a deacon until until now. Uh, he he was my introduction to the Syriac Church. Can you tell us about
0: Dairoyo Elio? What is notable about him?
2: Dairoyo Elio, uh, who, who now lives in Holland, uh, at Saint Ephraim's monastery. Dairoyo Elio came to um, to Jerusalem to become one of the monks of Saint Mark's with his sister Saide, she was also a nun. Uh, in the late 1970s, and the Royal Elio was a scribe, and and the 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 the, uh, the tradition of scribes persisted until the advent of computer fonts uh, in in the uh, late 1900s. Uh, so, being a scribe was important. And when I was probably 13 or 14, uh, I wanted to learn this art. So the Royal Elio taught me how to write with, with ink and with a reed. Uh, and he taught me how to, to fold papers, each five papers together to make a choir or a signature. And then later on, he taught me and he built for me a, a, a device to, to bind books. Uh, and, and he helped me how to bind books. And I'm grateful to him. Who is
0: Miss Munira Nasrallah? Can you say more about her? Uh,
2: Munira Nasrallah was a teacher at Talita Kumi, uh, the school where where I went. And she was a teacher of the Arabic language. Uh, And uh, uh, we had a good bond together. Uh, And when, during high school, my high school days, I wrote my uh, my uh, history of the Syriac community in the Holy Land in Arabic. Uh, of course, I was a teenager, so when I say I wrote, I wrote a historical book uh, as a teenager. Most likely, it it it's closer to collecting data from from different material uh, and made it into a into a cohesive book, uh, and. Uh, I asked uh, uh, Munira uh, or Miss Munira, if she can uh, edit the book for me. Uh, Arabic is not an easy language to write in. Uh, And uh, she was gracious and and she agreed. She lived in a house on a hill uh, that was not accessible by a street near the school. And it was a big hike to get to her house. And I used to go there, we we used to sit all day long read the text together and she would be fixing the Arabic for the text. Who is
0: Patriarch Mutafian? Why is he a person of prominence? Can you say more about him?
2: Uh, patriarch Mutafian, uh I met him much later in life. Uh, after I left, uh, he was the, pat- the Armenian patriarch of uh, Constantinople in Istanbul, and he visited the Syriac community in uh in uh, new jersey uh, and uh, i talk about him when in my epilogue where i talk about how some of the existing problems can be fixed and uh, and and that was the, the 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 current issues with the status quo between the syriacs and the armenians and Uh, I commended how the Armenian Patriarch of Istanbul uh, acknowledged uh, uh, the difficult relationship that was between the Syriac church and the Armenian church at the uh, end of the Ottoman days. Uh, The Ottomans uh, did not recognize the Syriac as an independent community and they 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 had to get access uh, uh, to the sultan via the Armenian patriarch of Constantinople uh, and pay taxes through that patriarch. The same way the Greek patriarch of Constantinople was responsible for all the Byzantine Orthodox communities, and they had to pay taxes through them. That was the Ottoman system. Instead of dealing with every community, they chose the uh, the, the the Greek patriarch. To uh, represent all Byzantines, even in the Orthodox in Eastern Europe, uh, and they chose uh, and installed an Armenian patriarch in Istanbul uh, to manage all the uh, Oriental Orthodox, the Greeks, the Copts uh, within the Ottoman Empire in terms of taxes and in terms of representation uh, with the state. Uh, but uh, you know, with 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 any with any power, always comes. There uh, uh, comes a bit of abuse. It was difficult for these other communities that had no direct relation uh, or direct uh, uh, representation with the Sultan to, to get their work done. Um, uh, they always had to go either through the Greeks, that's the Byzantines, or the Syriacs had to go through the Armenians to the degree that in the late 1900s, we start seeing petitions arriving in, in Istanbul. At the uh, to the Sultan, both by the East European uh, Byzantines asking to no, no longer be under the Greek Patriarch, that they wanted direct representation. The same thing with the Syriacs, writing to Istanbul uh, saying, we no longer want to be represented uh, uh, under the Armenian Patriarchate of Istanbul, we want to be represented independently and to deal with the Sultan ind- independently. Uh, these things did not did not did not happen. Uh, but this difficult history uh, between the Armenians and the the, uh, the the Syriacs was acknowledged in the speech of uh, of the Armenian Patriarch, and that's why I mention him, mention him in the book.
0: Can you tell us about Butrus al-Tawil? What was his role in his life? How do you portray him in this memoir? Uh,
2: He was, again, somebody I did not meet, but uh, I heard an anecdote about him. Uh, It's a funny anecdote because they they used to say uh, that my maternal grandfather uh, used to predict things. Uh, For example, uh, he he, he used to predict that uh, Hitler is going to fall. Um, And... uh, uh, and also, he predicted that the, that uh, Amman, the capital state of Jordan, uh, is one day going to to be ruined. And the anecdote is about about the, these predictions. Uh, it is said that this man putrus al-Tawil uh, was was a fan of 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 the might that that Hitler was projecting, uh, and later on. Uh, This man immigrated uh, after 1967. We said many Syriacs had to leave. He had to leave uh, uh, and and settle in Amman. And uh, the the funny part of the anecdote is that uh, during Black September, this is when uh, there were problems amongst the Palestinians and the Jordanians uh, in Jordan, uh, fighting took place. Uh, This uh, Mr. Tawil took his kids and and left Amman And people were saying, why did you leave Amman? I mean, this is a a small conflict in in, in a small portion of of the city Why are you leaving? Then he said, uh, Abdul Ahad, Abdul Ahad is my grandfather He said, Abdul Ahad predicted that Amman is going to get ruined So I am leaving Uh, So that he is mentioned uh, in in, in that context Who is
0: Barsoom Kiraz? Can you tell us about your relationship with
2: him? So Barsoum Kiraz was my, my father's uncle. Uh, as I said, my family, they, they left uh, the, the Ottoman uh, uh, areas after the genocide. But before the genocide, barsom went to the United States and he lived uh, first in Western Massachusetts and then in the Hoboken area in New Jersey. My father lost touch with him, uh, and, and my father had a picture of Barsom uh, on his desk in Bethlehem all the time. We grew up with this picture, and he always wanted to know his uncle, who, 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 whom he, he never met. Uh, and after we immigrated to the United States, my father tried hard to find my uncle, uh, even if he died, something about him they went to the old address where he lived in Hoboken, New Jersey, or Weehawken. But of course, nobody no, nobody could, could tell them anything. Unknown to my father, uh, Barsom had left to San Diego and uh, died and was buried in San Diego. And we immigrated to Los Angeles. So it's really a pity we didn't, everything I'm telling you, we didn't we didn't know the story about Bartholomew, that he went to San Diego. Uh, he is buried in San Diego, and my father lived in Los Angeles. At least we could have taken him to, to see his the grave of his uh, uncle, had we known at the time. But I discovered all of this after my da- my dad passed away.
0: What does your book reveal about the history and historiography of Jerusalem? What is your book's contribution to Jerusalem studies or the study of Jerusalem?
2: Uh, Well, um, it talks really, it portrays really the life of individuals and families. It it, it can be looked at as a social uh, history of the people. It's not a history of states. It's not a history of conflicts. It's not a history of... Who controlled what, when from on the political uh, arena, but it depicts the life of simple, ordinary people.
0: As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about how you've been spending your time since you completed this project?
2: Uh, I moved to other projects, but I stayed within this project. Uh, I I wrote an Arabic version of the memoirs, which I hope will be published this year. Uh, It's complete and has been copy edited. And now I am in the process of writing an, an abridged Syriac version of the memoirs.
0: I wish you the very best in your continued work. It has been an absolute privilege and honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time.
0: To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with George Anton Curaz. He is a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University. We've been discussing his new book, Water the Willow Tree, Memoirs of a Bethlehem Boyhood, published in Piscataway, New Jersey by Gorgias Press, 2022. Thank you.